Welcome to UCLA Extension's Business Insights with Roger Ternaden, where we highlight hot topics and underlying economic trends useful to you. We'll cover three major topics today that will help understand the growing impact of the commercial real estate meltdown, the melt-up in the U.S. stock market, and the rapid deterioration of the full-time jobs market in the United States. As you know from prior podcasts, we totally expected the commercial real estate market would crumble pretty rapidly and hammer the banks. This is now gaining both momentum and visibility, but not only in the United States. Banks in Japan and Germany are beginning to report large asset write-downs in their U.S. commercial real estate loans, with their stock prices strongly declining, in addition to a growing number of U.S. regional and community banks. The dark days we prepared you for are now here, with a potential of a new banking and therefore a new global financial crisis sitting in the wings. Keep in mind from our early podcasts that the shadow banking system, that is the non-banks that provide financing, as well as the issuance of large amounts of securitized debt, may be as much or more at risk than the regional and medium-sized banks. For example, Blackstone and BlackRock, as well as finance subsidiaries of Fortune 500 companies, may be expected to suffer from this downtrending real estate cycle. Overall, we're at the beginning, much closer to the beginning than at the end of this high-risk period of time that we face. Goldman Sachs, for example, recently estimated $1.2 trillion in mortgages coming due this year and next. Others say even more, and much of these mortgages represent underwater properties versus the debt loads. There are echoes of subprime here, as no one really knows the size of the problem. Who is holding the losses now, and how can it be managed? What's clear is that office real estate is severely impaired because of work-from-home changes following the pandemic. Vacancies are high, and tenants have incredible leverage in asking for lower rents. In a prior podcast, we shared that New York City's office space vacancy is equivalent in space to approximately 40 Empire State Buildings. It's getting worse with buildings entering foreclosure, and are being sold for far less than the existing mortgage debt balances. Market price discovery in New York, New York State, in Texas, California, and other states has finally started, with some large properties selling for under $100 per square foot, and discounts of 60, 70, 80%, and even more, in some cases more than 90% of COVID or pre-COVID transaction prices. Banking rules requiring taking impairments once losses are reasonably foreseeable are pretty clear, but they're not as clear for losses that haven't happened yet, but now they're happening. It's just starting with momentum quickly gathering. The end result? Investors in small and medium-sized banks face the risk of major stock price declines, while the money center banks like J.P. Morgan Chase will continue to gobble up the problem banks with subsidies from our tax dollars in addition to bank contributions to the FDIC and other lenders of last resort. Under any circumstances, it's fair to say that upcoming losses will be really high. How high? 
As just mentioned, Goldman Sachs estimates $1.2 trillion of commercial mortgages are scheduled to mature this year and next, or about a quarter of all outstanding commercial mortgages. And this is the highest level recorded going back to 2008. The biggest single holders are regional and community banks with a 40% share of all of this debt. Other estimates put the refinance needs as high as $1.5 trillion over the next two years. So we don't really know, but the amounts could be underestimated, actually. The office market has an existential crisis right now. That's not me saying this. This is a quote from Barry Sternlich, who's the CEO of Starwood Capital. And they have $115 billion of assets under management. Barry Sternlich told the Global Alts Conference, quote, it's a $3 trillion asset class that is probably worth $1.8 trillion. There's $1.2 trillion of losses spread somewhere, and nobody knows exactly where it is. And that's the end of the quote. To illustrate the entire size of the subprime U.S. mortgage market back in 2007 during the great financial meltdown was, quote, only. $1.3 trillion. So this is rivaling the size of the issue. It's actually expected to be much larger than the issue we faced 15 or 15 or so years ago. And there are two things that make this a particularly precarious situation. First of all, as I mentioned, small regional banks hold much of these losses and they don't have the ability to take much pain. Secondly, due to hold-to-maturity bond market losses, raising new capital is prohibitively expensive and in many cases impossible. In other words, many of these banks hold U.S. Treasury bonds and they're sitting with very large paper losses on these bonds that they're not even realizing as they've categorized them as hold-to-maturity assets. So that's a, a double whammy for our smaller banks. Investors have been particularly nervous over the past few weeks since New York Community Bank Corporation reported a surprise loss and slashed its dividend. Smaller regional banks are the biggest providers of commercial real estate finance in the United States, but some European lenders also have exposure. There is a large risk in a bank in Germany, PBB. That's been the largest loser in a Bloomberg index of Euro-denominated bank bonds. There is also a bank that has very large exposure, Landesbank Baden-Württemberg, a $750 million exposure, at least exposure to U.S. commercial real estate, and also a $300 million note, which is held by Ariel Bank AG. And both of these banks slumped considerably in stock price last week. Marlene Ebensteiner, an analyst at Deutsche Bank, quote, we see risks that PBB might have to further increase loan loss provisions and then thus put pressure on its already subdued profitability. She does think so far that these issues are mainly profitability issues and not solvency issues so far. PBB spokesperson Grit Becken said the firm's earnings forecast given in the third quarter results took into account all known and relevant facts, including those related to risk provisioning. So there is a certain feature of optimism being presented to the marketplace. Nevertheless, the stock prices of these banks are really getting hammered. 
Japanese bank, Aozora, is a, a bank that followed New York Community Bank in reporting property losses in the United States. And their stock also has dramatically gotten hammered. According to Bloomberg, the plunge in the U.S. commercial real estate sector has reverberated across the Atlantic and across the Pacific, wreaking havoc on real estate-focused German lenders in particular. And Morgan Stanley has given a warning to divest for investors to divest from senior bonds tied to another bank, Deutsche Pfaffenbriefbank. Pardon my pronunciation. The banking worries were triggered over the past week, particularly in order of priority with the New York Community Bank Corporation cutting its dividend, actually being positioned to look at reporting higher losses than those presented. The Japanese bank was a little bit surprised. The bank I mentioned reported unexpected losses, so that's raising the sensitivity on other Asian banks that have invested in U.S. debt. Deutsche Bank is highlighting losses on U.S. commercial real estate. In any event, the commercial real estate meltdown is picking up momentum, and that could have a ripple effect that actually could be similar to the ripple effect back 15 years ago during the close call of a global financial meltdown. I, I, I don't want to be too dramatic, but I have to recognize the possibility as the exposures are really compounding pretty quickly day by day. In the U.S. stock market, one analyst looked at the change in the market capitalization in the so-called Magnificent Seven, the FANG, stocks plus Microsoft, and those stocks have really resulted in over a $5 trillion change in the market capitalization of the indices. Very substantial, given the fact that the U.S. and the global stock markets are in the magnitude of $100 trillion of market capitalization. China, the value of one of the magnificent seven stocks like Microsoft is higher than the value of the entire Chinese stock market if that gives you an indication about how extended the U.S. stock market has been. And as our longtime listeners know, I made the decision months ago to get off of the Magnificent Seven stock market juiced train. I patiently await a major sell-off while the foreign money continues to flow into the United States, given the various war scenarios and risks outside the country, and while the large momentum funds globally continue to buy. Maybe I'm too conservative, but I'm not willing to lose 20, 30, or 40 percent plus of my investment dollars when sobriety returns, given all the international and U.S.-based economic issues. As an aside, I'm fully aware that the existing political administration in a major election year can paint a rosy picture and even have their Washington data bureaucrats follow along. But I'll remain patient and heavily in cash, waiting for lower prices. I'm sure it was just a coincidence that the Bureau of Labor Statistics just revised their employment data, painting a rosier picture of employment that more detailed data does not support, by the way. On the surface, speaking of jobs, reports have been blockbuster jobs reports. And certainly at the top, the Bureau of Labor Statistics reported in January the U.S. unexpectedly added 353,000 jobs, the most since January of 2023 when the print was 482,000 jobs, or double the consensus forecast. In fact, this was a four sigma beat to estimate unheard of in the past year. The headline data has been stellar across the board, starting with the unemployment 
unemployment rate, which once again failed to rise, all the way to average hourly earnings, which, by the way, have also unexpectedly spiked from 4.1% pre-revision to 4.5%, again uh, pushing the inflation narrative to a more serious degree. And this is the highest increase since last September and is a little bit of a slap in the face of the Fed's disinflation narrative. Going back to the revision, the Bureau of Labor Statistics decided to sharply slash the number of estimated hours that everyone was working from 34.3 to just 34.1, which may not sound like a lot until one realizes that the last time the work week was this low was when the economy was shut down during COVID. Excluding the COVID lockdowns, we'd have to go back to 2010 to find a work week that was this anemic. So in January, the Bureau of Labor Statistics conducted its annual benchmarking and update of seasonal adjustment factors. Long story short, what was until December a decline in jobs, they now are producing miraculously a transformation in job gains. For those asking, the revisions were unambiguously designed to give the impression that the labor market is slowing less than it is. Consider this, before the revision, the average monthly job gain in 2021 was largely unchanged, while the average monthly gain in 2022 was revised lower from 399,000 per month to 377,000. This was purposely goal-seeked to make 2023 appear stronger, in my opinion. And indeed, the average monthly increase in 2023 has been revised up from 225000 to 255000 So these revisions are intended to paint a rosier picture. This would be great and understandable if it wasn't entirely due to the Bureau of Labor Statistics' latest choice of seasonal adjustments, which have gone in my view, from being laughable to a little bit dramatic to being a full clown show. As the comparison would show, the revised Bureau of Labor Statistics payroll number and the ADP payrolls show a clear trend. The Biden administration numbers are now clearly rising, even as the impartial ADP, which directly logs employment numbers at the company level and is actually far more accurate, shows an accelerating slowdown. And speaking of seasonal adjustments, the January print was all seasonals because the seasonal adjusted payrolls was up 353,000, but the unadjusted was down 2.6 million or a difference of 3 million jobs. So in other words, just a 10% error rate in the seasonal adjustment would wipe out the entire gain and make January the January increase turn into a decline. Then again, this is the case with every January jobs report. The actual change in jobs in the first month of the year is normally down between 2.5 and 3 million. But it's more than just the Biden administration hanging its success on seasonal adjustments. The latest divergence between the establishment payrolls and the more accurate household actual employment survey is concerning. While in January, the Bureau of Labor Statistics claims 353,000 payrolls were added, the household survey found that the number of actually employed workers dropped again, this time by 31,000. This means while the payroll series hits new all-time highs every month, since December of 2020, the level of employment has barely budged in the past year. Worse, as shown, as we've discussed in prior podcasts, 
there's a gaping difference between the two series in the past four years. I'm getting a little bit too much more in the weeds, but let me pull up and get to another major point. When you look back one year and find in February 2023, the United States had 133.2 million full-time jobs, that's more than it has one year later. So all of the job growth since February of 2023 has been part-time jobs. We've discussed this before. Part-time jobs have increased by 870,000 since February of 2023. Full-time jobs have actually declined, and there's even more. As we enter the peak of the election season and political talking points that we expect to be thrown around left and right, what we find is that in January, the number of native-born workers went down again sliding by a massive 560,000 to just 129.8 million. Add this to the December data, and we get a near-record $1.9 million plunge in native-born workers just in the past two months. Let me repeat that. We get a near-record $1.9 million decline in native-born U.S. workers in just the past two months. And said otherwise, not only has all job creation in the past four years been exclusively for foreign-born workers, but there has been zero job creation for native-born workers actually since July of 2018. So once the inevitable recession finally is recognized, there will be millions of furious unemployed Americans demanding a more accurate explanation of what happened. In other words, the illegal immigration floodgates that were opened years ago and kept open. I think I'll leave the analysis on this point, and I will emphasize that we are actually declining more rapidly in full-time jobs in the past several months than we have seen historically. Momentum is actually picking up, going down. And despite that, the stock market is continuing to remain or hit all-time highs. So I suggest and advocate be conservative, Watch out for your investment monies. If you have doubts or concerns, it's wonderful to be invested in short-term treasury bills or bank certificate of deposits of the money center banks for the next six months, the next year, the next two years, as interest rates as high as in the 5% area can be obtained. It's a defensive move, I know, but right now my concern is to conserve cash and to lower risk. Be careful. Again, remain or stay conservative. Don't take on more debt if you can help it. Avoid, for now, making real estate commitments as the real estate market is in the initial stages of free fall, particularly the commercial real estate market, but not only commercial. Stay safe. We'll be back with you in two weeks. Be sure to email us at rtornadin at uclaextension.edu on more specific questions, which we will answer either personally or select as part of our future podcast. Hosted by Business and Legal Programs Director Roger Tornadin, this podcast is presented by UCLA Extension and produced by Jamie Moss at Studio 10960. These podcasts are made for educational purposes and are not financial advice. The goal is to educate and provide resources on focused economic and job trends with the latest support research so that you can make more informed financial and career decisions that best suit your personal needs.
UCLA Extension offers more than 5,000 online and in-classroom courses taught by over 2,000 leading practitioners to help you get from here to there. For more information on this podcast or our financial and legal programs, please check us out at www.uclaextension.edu. We know it's about your life, not just your money.